the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, it talks about the final battle for the land of Narnia. Throughout this book, there's deep, deep symbols for the world in its fallen state with the dwarves and other Narnians being tricked into believing Aslan has returned. But then there's also symbols of death and new life as many Narnians are cast through the doors of the stable, symbolic of death, and enter into the real Narnia and reunite with Aslan. And I want to pull from the story as we go through the episode, but to begin with, we need to start by how hope is an essential part of the spirit world. Now there's a couple of scriptures that we'll start with. First Peter 3.19, which is talking about Christ, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. This is after he has died. And the reason that this gives me hope is that God loves all of his children, even the ones who make mistakes, but that God is always trying to help them, even in the next life. That God is constantly reaching out and saying, I am here and I have a message for you of hope and joy and that those who never got a chance to hear the gospel will get a chance. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, else what else shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? If the dead are not resurrected, if we aren't going to have eternal life, then what's the point? But secondly, what's the point in baptizing someone for the dead if they don't have a chance to repent and choose Christ later on, even if they didn't get a chance before? And so in this waiting period before the second coming and the resurrection, God continues to give us opportunities for learning and growth because he is a father that is here to help us become more like him, not just trying to put roadblocks in our way. The next thing is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in Titus 2 verse 13, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And hope is referenced over 300 times in scripture in reference to the second coming. And to be honest, this is one of the things that I struggle with the most to understand or comprehend. As the whole second coming thing feels a bit out there, these ideas of hills splitting in half and the moon turning to blood and eyes falling from sockets, it all just seems a little bit surreal and it's hard for my mind to wrap around it. And how much of that is symbolic and how much of it is literal, I have no idea. And to be honest, it all just weirds me out a little bit. But there is things that I do know is that I do know that Christ loves us and I know that Christ will return. He will heal and fix and he will cleanse and purify. He will not and he cannot abandon his people. He will come make things right and bring peace to the world that we have not yet experienced. W.H. Griffith Thomas, an Anglican cleric and scholar, said, Nowadays the general idea is that death will come and the Lord may come, but scripture reverses this and says, Death may come, but the Lord will come. Hope in the New Testament is always associated with a great future connected with the Lord's coming. I do know he will come and he will make things right. And after he comes, then comes the resurrection. And in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love this lively hope, alive or living hope. And that Christ who came back from the dead helps us to feel that hope. Raymond McKendry said, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope today. It is our assurance that we have a living Savior to help us live as we should now. And that when in the end, we set forth on that last great journey. We shall not travel an uncharted course, but rather we shall go on a planned voyage, life to death, to eternal living. 
And the wonderful thing about the resurrection is no matter who we are or what we do, like it says in Acts 24, 15, we all who chose to come to earth in the pre-mortal life will eventually be resurrected. It's one of those few promises that no matter who we are, what we are, or what anyone else does, it will be fulfilled. And we can have an unwavering hope in that fact. And that's why I think the scriptures hit on resurrection so often. And anyone we have loved who has died, we will see again that our personal fears of death and pain and infirmities will one day be gone forever. Not to be replaced by nothingness, but pure, perfect bodies. Moroni 7.41 And what is it that you shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that you shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised into life eternal and this because of your faith in him according to the promise. President Russell M. Nelson says, The gift of the resurrection is the Lord's consummate act of healing. Thanks to him, no condition is hopeless. Thanks to him, brighter days are ahead, both here and hereafter. Real joy awaits each of us on the other side of sorrow. Now, after resurrection comes judgment. And this, for me, is the part I'm the most excited to talk about because I feel like it's one of those that is possibly the most misunderstood part of the plan of salvation the one that we have the greatest fear about. And Tim Mackey says, do you really want to live in a world where there is no hope of a future accounting and a setting rights of all wrongs? Do you really want to live in a world where there is absolutely no hope that there is some God to whom we are all accountable for our behavior and who will sort out this huge mess that we have made? It's interesting going back to this last battle story. There's this donkey named Puzzle and a ape called Shift. And the ape convinces the donkey to pretend to be Aslan and Shift uses Puzzle to get power. And when everyone's died and gone through the stable, Puzzle is in the woods and is too scared to meet Aslan because of his shame that he was so easily led astray by the ape Shift and would fain be glad if he could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon him to hide him from Aslan's presence to quote Book of Mormon. I think that this shows that even though it seems just and it seems like the right thing, we're all going to be somewhat scared or we think we'll be scared just because justice is terrifying and we have made mistakes and we're all imperfect. But it's interesting in Moroni 1034, he talks about the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah. And Elder Uchtdorf said, the day of judgment will be a day of mercy and love, a day when broken hearts are healed, when tears of grief are replaced with tears of gratitude, when all will be made right. How does that work with how we've always seen it? Won't justice mean that we will all have to pay for what we've done wrong? And that it will be this sifting process where God says, you were good, you go here, you were bad, go to hell. You know, these very clear left, right, almost a sorting line. But I personally don't feel that's how it's going to be. And like Elder Uchtdorf said, that it's going to be a day of mercy and love. So how could that be? Terrell and Fiona Gibbons in the book, The God Who Weeps, has this incredible line where they said, how much more meaningful is a life designed for spiritual formation rather than spiritual evaluation? All tests evaluate, and life is no exception, but the most meaningful and productive tests are those that assess with an eye to improvement that measure in order to remedy, that improve and prepare us for the next stage in an upward process of advancement. For these reasons, all talk of heaven that operate in terms of earning rather than becoming is misguided. Such ideas misconstrue the nature of God, his grace, and the salvation he offers. I just love that. 
spiritual formation rather than spiritual evaluation is that God during the judgment day will assess us with an eye for improvement. In 1 Corinthians 11.32, it says, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. God's judgment is to help us, not condemn us. We are meant to keep progressing and become better. It will be a time of reflection and improvement. Puzzle the donkey finally is brave enough to go and meet Aslan. And C.S. Lewis gives very little detail other than he says that Aslan calls Puzzle forward to talk to him. And Aslan whispers to him and the donkey's ears droop and then perk up. And that's all that's, all that's said. And I love it. I love that C.S. Lewis doesn't say anything about what was said. That Aslan probably acknowledged what was done, but then gave guidance and direction on how to improve and that the donkey could then have hope to move forward. And I think that's a beautiful example. Now, what about hell? I think we have in the past been taught or through generations have imagined God is this very moody individual that loves us on one side and is willing to throw us into a pit of fire and agony as soon as we sin on the other side. And that's not who God is. And I think Satan wants us to see God in this light because a moody bipolar God is an unsafe and untrustworthy God. If it's just simply he acts out in anger because he throws a fit if people don't listen to him, that's not a safe relationship. And Satan wants us to have fears and doubts. Personally, my understanding of who God is is someone who loves us and wants us to have every opportunity to come back to him, but will not take away our agency or force us to do things we're not willing to do. Remember the dwarves I mentioned at the beginning, they were tricked by Puzzle the Donkey, and Shift the Ape sold them into slavery as if it was Aslan's bidding, and when they were freed, they were so angry that they're like, no, we have had enough with Aslan or anything like that. We are for the dwarves, and we won't trust anybody. And when they're thrown in the stable, symbolic of death, everyone else goes through and finds this beautiful forest and all these beautiful things. And they find the dwarves sitting in a circle, looking at each other, just huddling together. And they try and tell them like, hey, look, it's beautiful. Look at this beautiful fruit. And they are so lost in their mind that they think that they're still in the stable and that it's dark and that people are just trying to trick them and hurt them again. And even Aslan comes and roars and they think, oh, it's just the other Narnians making sounds to try and trick us into getting scared. And Aslan then provides this feast and they think, oh, it's just hay and trough water. And then they start beating on each other because they think the other guy has more. And then when they finally calm down, they say, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And then Aslan says, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. And I think that speaks so much to what hell will actually be, is the prison of our personal perspectives, prison of our minds, that we feel that is what we deserve or that's how it should be. And that we do not want to be with God. Either we're angry or we are misunderstanding. We have chosen to reject him and the potential joy that could be there. It's not going to be this fiery pit getting stabbed by spears. It will be a hell of our own making. And C.S. Lewis has this great quote. God created humans to have fellowship with him and has provided the means by which they can do so. It is a person's choice to experience hell. His or her own sins send them there. Hell is God honoring human freedom to choose an existence independent from their creator. In the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. 
What is it that they are asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? He did that on the cross to forgive them, but they don't want forgiveness. To leave them alone, that's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Doctrine and Covenants 88 verse 32 says, And they who remain shall be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they are not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. God has so much to give us and he wants us to have it, but he won't force us. We get to decide for ourselves what eternity looks like. He's provided the path and the means and the experiences and the direction and the savior to allow us to go and return and live in his presence without the guilt, with the joy of knowing that we've done our best. But that's up to us. Now, eternal life in degrees of glory, Ether 12 verse 32, and I also remember thou hast said thou hast prepared a house for man, yea, even among the mansions of thy father, in which man might have a more excellent hope. Wherefore, man must hope, or he cannot receive an inheritance in the place which thou hast prepared. Hope is required because if we don't have a trusting relationship with God, we won't even want to be there. Now, in our mortal lives, there's different symbols of eternal life. Garden of Eden, Sabbath day, the Holy Spirit. These are all to give us a foretaste of heaven. And even just being on earth is a taste of heaven. And there's a character called Jewel the Unicorn in the last battle again, where he says this beautiful line where as they're going through the forest in the new Narnia or in heaven, and looking back on old Narnia, which has been destroyed, and they're mourning a bit. But looking at this new place, he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. In this life, we get a taste of the next life, and our hope helps us feel what eternal life will be. Thomas Aquinas, an old Italian friar, said, The hope of which we now speak attains God by leaning on his help, and the good which we ought to hope for from God properly and chiefly is the infinite good, for we should hope from him nothing less than himself. Therefore, the proper and principal object of hope is eternal happiness. I just want to end on Enos 1 verse 27. And this is what we all can have a hope of experiencing in the next life. And that I desire for myself to have lived in a way that I will want to be there. And that I can say like Enos does in verse 27. And I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer. For I know that in him I shall rest, and I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality, and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Mm -hmm.